The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is special guest Jesse Felder, who I've had on a few months back, and he joined uh, kindly on a sponsored space that we did not too long ago. Jesse, I always appreciate your time. Before we get too deep into anything, just talk about who you are, what you've done, how'd you get involved in markets. Yeah, I uh, started in markets back in the mid-90s, graduated from college and went to work straight away for Bear Stearns in their LA office. I, I went to work for a guy there who was essentially kind of running an in-house hedge fund. And uh, we uh, ended up leaving and starting our own hedge fund in um, LA. We started three funds, a kind of income-based fund, a long-short fund, and a short-only fund, which was fun to try and manage uh, through the dot-com mania. So I was the head trader and assistant portfolio manager of that that fund until March of 2000. I quit literally within a few days of the, the peak of the dot-com mania in March 2000. And since then, I've just been, I started writing about markets in about 2005 and uh, have just been writing about markets and kind of managing my own money ever since. I'm sure you've seen those those memes, those those tweets of that Bloomberg cover photo that came out a while ago that shows... A hedge fund perception where it's a guy standing there and it's either, you know, the perception is that it's up and to the right, but in reality, it's, for lack of a better way of saying it, flaccid, given the way the Bloomberg cover looked. I'm curious, Jesse, what is it that, that's resulted in hedge funds not being able to perform as well as they used to? It's been well documented that alpha, for the most part, uh, is now negative across the board uh, on average for, for many years, and that wasn't really always the case. What what drove kind of, let's call it the decimation of our performance by hedge funds? Well, I, I think it's two things mainly. One, um, you know, it, it has become extremely difficult to sell short really since the financial crisis. Obviously, short sellers, and you know, did fabulously well through the dot-com bust. And then again, during the financial crisis, I think if you had any kind of uh, desire to manage risk, you know, you were successful through those periods but since the fed started you know printing money in 2008-9 it was you know became very difficult to short anything you know the the rising tide of liquidity has kind of lifted all boats since then and um you know i i, I think short sellers have gotten a lot of criticism i you know my good friend bill fleckenstein i think was brilliant enough to close his hedge his short selling fund in you know middle of 
early 2009 when he realized, you know, I, I, this isn't going to work anymore. And, um, you know, he, you know, a lot of us tried to, to continue to, to sell short and, and, you know, through this, the last decade, it's been difficult, but, you know, the other side of that too, is I think you look at a lot of hedge funds, at least, you know, in my experience and, and the way I've tried to manage on the long side, and it typically has a value bent. And so you look at, you know, like, um, you know, the, the hedge fund titans of the past, you know, Julian Robertson, that, that kind of whole lineage of the, you know, tiger. And it, you know, you have a value bent and value has been a really difficult thing to pursue for, you know, the last 10 years also as growth has really dominated. And, and, uh, the markets with this shift to passive investing, a lot of value stocks have been, um, you know, if stocks aren't in an index, there is just uh, not really much money there to to flow into these out of favor stocks, and so uh, I think we're now seeing a shift where people are really starting to appreciate again the value of active management, the value of uh, research, the value of pursuing these these types of things that have shown their value for over long periods of time. Um, but uh, but it's been a long time coming. So you mentioned. Uh- Bill Fleckenstein, because I remember him stepping away too, and actually I have him scheduled for a space, I think, in in two weeks, because it seems like he's trying to maybe get back in the game a little bit as far as some notoriety, which if his track record you know, is repeatable, that would suggest that there's going to be more alpha opportunities. And that kind of goes to a discussion around the pendulum swing, which you referenced, that there's been so much money that's gone into passive that it's actually made a lot of the active traders no longer be in business, right? And there's always this kind of interesting phenomenon in markets where you need active for passive and passive for active. If everybody goes passive, well, now you don't have as many players in the game. Anomalies get bigger. Pendulum swings back. Suddenly, active makes a makes a comeback. And the value tilt is an interesting one. I want to I want to play with that a little bit because that makes it seem like the best environments to do short trades in are ones where value is dominated. Uh, I want you to talk through that a bit. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, in an environment where rising tidal liquidity is lifting all boats, um, you know, it, it at least all boats that are, have index exposure, it makes it really difficult to short and it makes it really difficult to set yourself apart from the index. And so when you have this this shift to, you know, when correlations start to and you know this disperse a little bit and you see more dispersion in the markets i think it's a time to shine for for active managers i mean just the best example that i can see in the markets over the last 18 months two years is you know back in the fall of 2020 we saw the in the s&p 500 the exposure the allocation or the the membership of the energy sector within the S&P 500 fell to about 2% of the index. And those stocks were completely left for dead. Uh, but anybody, you know, who has an active type of mindset is looking at these things and saying, you know, the, the capital cycle has made them very attractive. You know, they had five, six years of very uh, crimped spending, right? And and for uh, commodity type businesses, they're... T- entirely driven by that right when you have a bunch of money flowing in to like we saw from 2010 to 2014 um and and capitals cheap uh those companies use all that capital to invest in supply and uh, the oil price crashes the five years subsequent to that oil price crash you had you know these companies were starved of capital um and esg magnified that 
And so, you know, you could see that these, you know, the stocks were literally trading well below liquidation value. So anybody, you know, kind of looking to to energy, there was also a massive amount of insider buying, um, which is something that I pay very close attention to. When you have, you know, a guy like Harold Hamm, who's stepping up and buying literally hundreds of millions of dollars of his own stock and saying, I'm going to keep buying uh, until the stock price. I don't think the stock price is, is cheap anymore. You know, it's, it's hard to ignore that. But passive investors are essentially, essentially making that bet that, uh, you know, I don't want to bet alongside Harold Hamm um, and, and the like. I want to, you know, I want to own the most of things that are the most overvalued and I want to avoid the things that are most undervalued. That's the nature of market cap weighting. And so I think, you know, the, the, this, this uh, dramatic outperformance of energy over the last 18 months has been a real wake-up call to to passive investors, uh, and that uh, if you're going to pursue this strategy, you know one of my favorite quotes is you know somebody asked Charlie Munger about passive a couple of years ago, and he said, if you take it to its logical extreme, you get preposterous results. And I think you know we obviously we haven't taken it to the ultimate extreme of 100% invested in passive, but we did take it to way too too far of an extreme where way too much money i think has been put into passive and it creates these uh distortions that uh really create opportunities for people looking to find things that are neglected by the indexes the word dispersions interesting to focus on because there is a school of thought that uh ets basically made everything co-move more similarly I mean, if you take energy out of the equation this year, clearly, and dispersion is necessary for diversification. Again, if you take out commodities, everything's acted kind of the same this year, right? Whether it's stocks, bonds, your sort of mix of asset classes, which are supposed to have that dispersion, are actually correlated more than than ever before, uh, at least for a moment in time. Talk through if you think ETFs have maybe changed some of the market structure here in terms of trying to stock pick trying to get that dispersion that alpha which is elusive for most we'll be back after a quick break hello listeners michael guyad here from lead lag live are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends risk management and investment strategies then you need the lead lag report our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before and guess what we're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. I don't know if like the ETF as a vehicle has created a lot of these problems. I, I mean, I, there's a lot of problems I can see from just algorithms. Uh, you know, there's been a big push to just algorithmic-based trading and and a lot of that's good but a lot of it can cause problems like i i do believe what you know what we saw in gamestop and bed bath and beyond um was uh, you know the the crash in those stock prices during the early days of covid and then the ra- the rebound all of that extraordinary volatility i think was driven by algorithms taken to way too far of an extreme i mean as a as a longtime short seller I would never even dream of touching something that has 100% of the float sold short or anywhere near it. I mean, I, I was buying Bed Bath & Beyond 
uh, you know, stock two years ago um, into the COVID crash because it was essentially trading for, you know, uh, less than, than book value. And they owned a ton of real estate. And 80% of the float was sold short. So if there was any positive signs at all in that business to where short sellers had to start covering, you knew the stock price was going to go up five tenfold. And GameStop was even more dramatic. So, you know, and, and Michael Berry was was pretty uh, vocal about that, you know, in the early days of COVID that, you know, GameStop is extremely cheap stock, you know, cheap for a reason, right? The business is not fantastic, but it gets cheap enough to where it becomes a, a cigar, but we're literally trading less than liquidation value and you have a hundred percent of the float sold short. So I, I think there's, you know, algorithmic based short selling funds. And I think they're at work in the markets today still, where you see things that are dramatically overshorted and uh, they use, you know, a trend following technique that doesn't even take into consideration the amount of float sold short or any of these, you know, valuation metrics. They just see they're high volatility and they're in a downtrend. And so we're going to continue to short more and more of it until it goes against us. You know, I, I think those are the types of things that that uh, I see operating the market. I don't think necessarily ETFs, but but passive has, you know, is another algorithm in the markets as we've we've seen. I mean, right. It's essentially just money flows in. We buy stocks and we buy them based on their market cap. So it, it's been astounding to me to watch a stock like Apple which I was, you know, buying heavily and writing about on my blog, you know, in the wake of Steve Jobs passing, stock traded five times cash flow. Nobody wanted to own it. And today it trades, you know, if you back out stock-based compensation, it's like 30, 40 times cash flow and everybody wants to own it. But, with, you know, you have the algorithm, you know, it's just the, the company's buyback program, which is just that we're going to buy consistently every day, you know, uh, through, you know, come hell or high water. And passive, you know, it's the biggest stock in the index. So money flows into the indexes. It's all going to flow to Apple. And then you throw in, you know, the crazy call buying thing. And, and so you get, you get these, uh, you know, stock price extremes that, are, that are, are driven by algorithms. And I think passive is another one of these algorithms that's creating um, distortions. So it kind of goes from fool by randomness to fool by algos, right? It's kind of, I think, the a way to frame it and you know speaking about apple and, and you mentioned steve jobs jobs is passing i i always had this belief that when steve jobs passed the market needed some new charismatic personality to see as a visionary and elon musk was that and the narratives then built and uh, and tesla obviously went in terms of the stock price utterly crazy when you look at some of these mega cap stocks particularly something like a tesla do you think that's much more algo just trend following than than this narrative around retail coming in? Because I have to tell you, I don't quite understand how people think that this is all about diehard Tesla fans pushing the stock up when the market cap is enormous. Well, I think there's something to do with the, the call buying frenzy also. You know, obviously Tesla is insanely priced, but you know, in in NVIDIA, I mean both also, you know, trading 30 times sales, you know, which is which is, you know, several multiples greater than its peak at the dot-com mania. So, I mean, you know, and, and Tesla, you know, a lot of people have done a lot of work to demonstrate, you know, it's, it's more valuable than all the other car companies combined, et cetera, et cetera. But when you look at, I mean, even still to this day, the amount of call buying in Tesla's stock is is just off the charts. And, and I think they're, 
there is a dynamic and I'm not an, an options, you know, expert, but there is a dynamic where, you know, they, I mean, we've seen this, uh, I think, I can't remember who it was, but in actually 2020 pre pandemic, there was an interesting article in Bloomberg about this phenomenon where a lot of the, you know, wall street bets kind of Reddit type crowds realized that, Hey, if we, if we all go in and buy a bunch of calls, right, we're, we're going to push the stock price up. Because market makers end up short the calls, and then how do they hedge a short call position? They got to go buy the underlying equity. So with a small amount of capital, you can create a bunch of real cash, you know, demand for the shares in these things. And I think that's that's one of the main things that's been. So that is pure speculative mania, right? That's that's you read uh, manias, panics, and crashes, or. You know, any of these books about speculative manias in, in the past and and what we've seen in this call buying friendly is exactly that um, is, is, you know, a speculative mania that's that's pushed these prices up. Now, I, I think what makes this one different is, you know, the amount of leverage that's been used. Right. I mean, margin debt to GDP is higher than anything we've seen since 1929, since the 1929 peak. But even look back to, you know, to the dot-com mania and things, we didn't have leveraged ETFs uh, like we have today, which, I mean, the, the amount of money in leveraged ETFs quadrupled from the pre-pandemic. And then obviously call buying um, went through the roof, billions and billions and billions of dollars of call buying. So the amount of leverage that's been used during this mania is is completely off the charts. And and it's it's probably, I think, only begun to be unwound. I remember I did a space with... Um gina martin adams of bloomberg and she noted that that point about margin that while it's true it happens at every single new high historically so to her it was one of those things where it's not unexpected i kind of pushed back a little bit saying yes but the more leverage you have the more vulnerable you are to a margin call that you know dominoes into all kinds of other volatility dynamics and other asset classes how much of what we've seen this year, do you think, is is due to sort of a margin call that seems to be happening across the board? Because the thing about margin calls in one asset class is that it tends to never really just be isolated to that that one asset class. It's a good point. Margin debt is always, you know, goes higher. And so you have to normalize it somehow, which is why I looked at, at margin debt to GDP. And, uh, you know, at, in 2000, it peaked at 3% of GDP. In 2007, uh, pre-financial crisis, it almost got back to 3%. And then pre-pandemic, we got to about almost 3.5%, which to me was another sign that even before the pandemic, uh, the amount of leverage was indicating. So John Kenneth Galbraith is, you know, basically called margin debt in his book on 1929, it, basically the index for the volume of speculation. When you normalize it to GDP, I think that's a way to try and understand well, how, do, how do we compare this to the dot com mania, how do we compare it? So you know, we got to f- almost four percent of GDP early last year, and you know that was thirty percent bigger than than what we saw in two thousand, um, and that's normalized. So I, I do think we are starting to see uh, an unwind. I think that's you know in this, but call buying is is starting to normalize, but it's still above you know the pre pandemic levels, and we still see money flowing into the uh, ARK Innovation Fund. We still see money flowing into equities. Uh, you know, I, I just tweeted an article from Wall Street Journal this morning showing that only 4% of the money that, that went into the markets last year has actually been pulled out in withdrawals. And, and 
typical market bottoms, you see, you know, 50, 70, 80% of that money flow back out 100% during the financial crisis, you know, the previous 12 months inflows. And so we've only seen 4% of that money come back out, um, you know, tells me that we haven't seen, you know, and everybody's talking about, we, we need to see capitulation, but uh, yeah, we, we haven't really seen that um, in, in any respect so far. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. So worth noting that there's a lot more hidden leverage than people realize, right? It's not just leverage in terms of how much people are margining to buy up equities, but a lot of these companies are also themselves highly indebted, right? I don't think most people make that that connection. Well, yeah, I mean that, that and that's the 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 cost or the you know natural result of a 40-year downtrend in interest rates, right? Um, we see government debt to GDP um, hitting. You know, over 100%. And we see corporate leverage. You know, one thing that, uh, uh, well, and now we see consumers, you know, putting back on, you know, credit card debt. But, you know, that's that's probably one area where leverage isn't as high as, as other areas. Is, you know, we, we mailed checks to people. And they use that to pay off a lot of debt. And we're talking about student loan forgiveness and these things, um, you know. But, but you're right. There is a lot of leverage in the system in terms of uh, corporations, government debt, and, you know, investor debt, too. Another one I didn't mention is these asset-backed loans, which don't even go into margin debt. So you have, uh, you know, high net worth individuals who have, for tax reasons, decided to not, you know, sell equities and, and these types of things and, and rather just borrow against it. And, and that's, that's also been a huge area of business for the major banks. And so, yeah, there's there's more leverage, you know, and I'm mostly worried about the leverage in the financial system, leverage to, to markets, because I do think margin debt is just representative of a, a much larger amount of leverage that's out there. Yeah, and leverage always is driven primarily by recency bias, right, which creates overconfidence because people then start making money, they lever up, low volatility, and that's sort of the, the so-called Minsky moment that takes place. Now, you mentioned the 40-year downtrend in rates and i'm sure similar to me jesse you've heard everybody say oh this is about to end this is about to end this is about to end and now people are seemingly very confident that it's over that this this trend in yields is now on a a permanent basis reversed but it seems to me that you can't really function as a system if especially with the amount of leverage we have if yields keep rising uh, certainly at this pace unless growth really does overtake inflation. So let's talk about the bond market here for a moment in terms of if you believe this 40-year downtrend in yields is over or if this is more capitulation. And the reason I say if this is capitulation is you've had negative real yields for a long time, which means bonds have lost money for a lot of people for a while on a real return basis. And typically the end of a bear market is when you have that flush. And what's happened in the bond market to me, this year kind of looks like a flush. 
And I totally agree. I think, you know, the last couple of times we've spoken, I've said, you know, all my indicators suggest we should be seeing a, a top in yields. The, the reason or the fact that they've continued higher, I think, is entirely attributable to, to two things. One, the Fed, you know, lifting its thumb off of the bond market. So finally, uh, interest rates can kind of reprice to figure out where's the natural where's the natural level that they should be. And, you know, two, the bond market vigilantes are back. I think you can only buy bonds um, if you believe that, you know, long-term bonds, if if rates aren't going to go higher. Um, and uh, if you think that uh, the Fed is going to, to preserve the purchasing power of the dollar. Um, and so I think with all the signs of recession that are popping up, you know, that I've been writing about for several months now, uh, that, you know, buying bonds would be a good bet in that respect. Um, but you also have to have faith in the idea that the Fed is going to do enough to bring inflation back down. Because if inflation stays, you know, even at 5, 5%, right, and you can't buy a 3% yielding um, 10-year treasury or 30-year, you know, treasury bond. So I think the fact that that rates haven't been listening to fundamentals is just a sign that investors aren't confident in buying them at a 3% yield if the Fed isn't willing to do whatever it takes to bring inflation back down. So I but I, I so I, I do think, you know, when you look at the long-term charts of rates, the 10-year, the 30-year, they've both broken out of their long-term downtrends. To me, that's a clear sign. Paul Tudor Jones has said when you see price uh, break an important level like that, it's a clear sign. Um, that the trend has changed and uh, is going to continue in that direction for some time. Now, I think that's that's uh, an important long-term signal that the downtrend is over. But that doesn't mean rates are going to continue to power higher. I think, um, you know, I, I, I agree with you, Michael, that I think that, you know, the economy can't handle rates that are much higher than they are today. I think if we saw 4% on the 10 the or the 30-year, we'd have people starting to talk about um, yield curve control again. And I, I, I think that discussion is coming at some point. I, I know you had uh, my friend Tom McClellan on uh, one of these spaces recently, and he's got an interesting indicator where the gold price leads interest rates by, I think, about 20 and a half months, I think is, uh, you know. And so that that's actually been a very good signal leading indicator for rates. It suggests, you know, we are topping rates right about now. And that's just, you know, then you look at all the other fundamental, you look at like cyclicals to defensives have, you know, been weak, um, you know, small cap relative to large caps have been weak. I mean, a lot of these uh, indicators that suggest rates should be um, topping right now. So, so I do think we probably are in a, maybe a sideways uh, trend for rates, and they could even come back down to test the, the breakout of that downtrend I was talking about. So for me, this is the most important question then as a follow-up to that point, which is that if rates have topped, does that mean that treasuries in particular act like the risk-off asset? So if yields have topped, do you think the equity market would view that as bullish, or would suddenly then the narrative maybe change to, well, shit, if long duration yields have topped, then this inflation is transitory, and then maybe there's other things to worry about. If uh, yields top, it's not necessarily a sign that, um, and, and I think they probably are in, you know, sh making, in the process of making a short-term top right now. I think the bond market does a better job at, at forecasting, you know, the economy than it does inflation. 
I think, you know, I, for inflation, I looked at things like, you know, the copper price and, and those, those types of things. And it's interesting to see, you know, with Shanghai reopening again, this, you know, short-term correction in copper and, and the like, you know, could be near, near an end. And, uh, I, I, I do think, personally, I'm in the stagflation camp. I think we're going to see the economy. We're probably already in recession, and uh, inflation is going to remain elevated. You know, the question is, can bonds hedge hedge stocks going forward? And I think if inflation Which goes back to the dispersion, right? Yeah, so that I think if inflation right. stays elevated, it's going to be tough to use bonds as as that hedge. I I go back and forth to trying to trade. You know, I've been trading short Nasdaq. For most of this year, you know, just through futures, but you know, the last week or two, I've been trying to, to switch that and say, hey, you know, maybe buying bonds is the is the better hedge in the short run, um, just because we're getting oversold in stocks and sentiment's getting pretty negative and sentiment's very negative in in bonds, and uh, you know, we we could see, you know, rally in the bond market. So, but but I don't know if that, you know, will act as a hedge to a further decline in stocks or if stocks and bonds are probably going to rally together. Yeah, and I've been I've been teasing that out as a series of tweets that I wouldn't be surprised to see yields drop and stocks rally initially, but then yields continue to fall on the long end, maybe, and then stocks go down. In other words, the initial reaction would be a misread by equities because I keep going back to this point that I don't see how you can have secular inflation when debt is as high as it is and not changing, right? And all the other longer term things are still in play, demographics, technology. I mean, the disinflation deflation argument, I don't think really disappeared. It's just on hold for a bit. But I'd like to hear your thoughts on sort of that that point. Today, I'm surprised that people are so quick to dismiss the the parallel between today and the early 70s, because the parallel between today and 1973 is, is very, very close, right? I mean, you had uh, Syria go to war against Israel, and that created the oil embargo that Saudi Arabia, you know, and and created an energy crisis. But inflation was already a problem before that, because government spending for the war in Vietnam was, was, you know, so rapid. And so, uh, you know, the parallels are so obvious. And in fact, when you look at the 12-month change uh, in the S&P 500, the the, the price pattern, is like a 90% correlation to 1973 right now. So, I mean, to me, everything I look at says, hey, this is, this is the, the, what we should be looking at. And, and so in, in 73, 74, right, the, the economy nominal growth, you know, was still remained really high. The economy grew at 8% in 1974 in, in nominal terms, but inflation rose to 12%. And so in real terms, we had a, a pretty painful recession. You know, I I think that's that's what we saw in you know starting in in the first quarter of this year. Real growth was negative, nominal growth is still really good, but inflation's rising faster, and so I, I think that's that's the environment we're in. And I think the the forces of inflation, right? The 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 supply chain constraints are, are kind of a unique compounding factor on top of the underlying inflation. When you have such a shortage of labor as we have right now. You know, that that's something that doesn't go away. Wall Street Journal has an article today. They Walmart can't hire enough managers at two hundred thousand dollars a year. They just can't find enough college graduates to come manage a Walmart. And you know, they're paying drivers over a hundred thousand a year starting pay and they can't find enough drivers. Those are things that don't go away. And and this is something that, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Goodhart and Prodhunt's uh, recent book, The Great Demographic Reversal. 
because they um, wrote about and published these these things way be- well before the pandemic that the aging of society creates labor shortages. You, you're relying on fewer and fewer workers to run a growing uh, economy, and that is naturally inflationary, right? People in the workforce are the productive side of the of the economy, right? They're producing more than they consume. People who are retired or you know um, children who aren't working yet. Uh, the dependents in the economy are, uh, you know, subtract from that. They uh, from productivity. They consume more than they produce, and so and they're the inflationary side. So the the product, you know, the workers are the deflationary side of the economy, and uh, retirees are the inflationary side of the economy because they're consuming more than they produce. And so as the as societies age, they become more inflationary. This is something the BIS published five or six years ago that. There's a very high correlation between between age dependency ratios and inflation in economies. So the BIS warned that this was going to be a problem well before the pandemic. Now we're seeing it, and it's exacerbated by the pandemic, but it's not going away. The underlying secular forces of inflation are going to remain. And for the Fed to think that, you know, they're going to raise rates to two and a half percent, create a soft landing, rein in inflation, it's it's asinine in my view. We have, uh, you know, the, the Taylor rule says Fed funds should be 10% today, right? And we're not even at one. That's not how you how you rein in inflation, especially when you have these secular forces of inflation that are that are uh, problematic and they're only being exacerbated by deglobalization and all these other issues. I do think we're already seeing a, you know, a, the de-dollarization process get underway and it's the the worst you know possible timing right i mean we need people to keep you know keep money in dollars and and to buy treasuries and to keep this you know whole thing going our you know massive trade deficit um you know requires these things and and so with the fed printing so much money and um the government taking on so much debt uh, you know, the only way you know we can really kind of get away with all of this is uh, to have the world's reserve currency. And so, I, you know, the with people, I mean, I, you had Russia, right, well before the the war in Ukraine, um, divesting dollars, and I think you know China's been looking at ways to do this, and it, this is this is problematic. Uh, it's something that, uh, but it, but it's also a slow motion process. As for the idea that um, there's going to be some other uh, type of currency, you know, I have no way of knowing. I, you know, I'm a, a value investor at heart. I just want to find cheap stocks, you know, basically. Uh, I, you know, I study technical analysis and, and insider activity and all these other things to try and help my probability at, uh, you know, stock picking. Um, but when it comes to these, you know, some of these big macro themes, I, I think there's really, I, I pay very close attention to them, but I think there's almost no way to try and anticipate and profit from them. The, that's why one of the reasons I've stayed away from the crypto space. It's, to me, it's very reminiscent of the dot-com bubble and uh, looking at things and saying, and trying to pick the winners uh, that were going to come out of that bust. And it was, you know, you look throughout history. A um, hundred years ago, it was the the auto bubble, and there were literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of auto companies. And trying to pick the winners coming out of that was, you know, it's it's like buying a lottery ticket. You can you know buy the stocks of all of them and hope that you know one of them turns into a you know 
100 bagger something like that and and more than makes up for uh the all the other losers that go out of business um but that that's not you know the type of investing that i'm interested in uh and so you know when it comes to an alternative currency for me when i try and think of okay what you know what do i want to use as an alternative currency i i i look to gold and i and i think that you know that's the only one that's proven it you know it can't be you know you, you can't make more of it nobody's figured out how to to make you know produce gold it has true you know proven uh, scarcity over long periods of time and has been money for 5000 years so for me that's 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 the one and and we go through cycles these sociological cycles where we you know we we screw things up we okay we need to come back and create a gold based form of money uh, and then we print too much money, have to break the, you know, that new money's linked to gold or debase it. And somehow, you know, like the Romans did. Um, but we end, end up realizing that, uh, it, gold is, is really the only, uh, way to create a, a real stable, uh, currency. What, what crypto and, and blockchain have, uh, what makes them different? than just literally physical gold in my mind is that they are uh, a technology and uh, the lesson of technology and and this is the lesson i think that we're already learning um, uh, about bitcoin is uh, there is no technology in in the history of technology uh, that has preserved its value Right. Um, the, the nature of technology is creative destruction. You create something and when something new and more efficient comes along, that previous version uh, becomes worthless. And I mean, just think about Windows 95. What's Windows 95 worth today? Uh, it's worth nothing. Um, and that's because you know, whenever the new version of Windows comes along, everybody, you know, the, the, the previous versions become worth less and less until Microsoft, you know, says these aren't supported anymore and we can't, we literally can't use them anymore. They become worthless. And so I think that's, you know, the, my, you know, my friend, uh, Eric Townsend, and I talked about this a few years ago and he said, you know, that, that, uh, you know, eventually we're going to look at, at Bitcoin as the MySpace of the cryptocurrency world. And, and when the Facebook comes along, people are going to send, maybe that's Ethereum. Okay, great. Well, you know, it's much more efficient and these things and doesn't waste as much energy and can process more transactions. Terrific. Well, that means that, you know, previous cryptocurrencies are have less value because they're less efficient and, and, and things. And, and so that, that's just my view is, is that, you know, when you have then the nature of technology means that um, something better is going to come along. And when it does, it's going to that new thing is going to have value but the prior things are going to have less value. We had our own broker dealer in the late nineties and we had, you know, I had some, just a handful of retail clients that were trading through me. I had another hedge fund um, based in New York that was trading through my trading desk. And so, uh, you know, I would see kind of what firsthand, what, you know, was, were the most popular things. And, and the, idea the, the, the idea in the late 90s was that people could quit their jobs, become day traders, and they could probably make 100% a year or something like that, you know, just buying Netscape and, and these other stocks. And if they couldn't make 100% a year, then it was like, why, you know, why is it worth my time? You know, we saw a much more extreme version of this. People weren't just buying stocks, they were buying 
call options that expire in two days, right? They're literally on Wednesday buying call options that expire Friday. And, you know, so the, the amount of leverage being employed and, and people think that I make a thousand, 10,000 times my money, um, in a matter of days, uh, you know, there were, there were all these, you know, uh, TikToks and things where people were saying, look, if you can just make, you know, 1% a day, every day, um, you can be a millionaire. And it's like, you know, yeah, if every, if it was that easy, then we'd all be, you know, trillionaires right now. Um, and so I think that the, the mindset was much more extreme, uh, today. And I, you know, during this latest mania, and I think we're only in the very early innings, uh, of it being unwound. Bob Farrell, there was an interesting article in Barron's this weekend with Bob Farrell and his rules, uh, you know, on, on, on money management and markets. And, uh, you know, when you, he, in the interview, he said that you know, he compared also the, the current stock market to the, the nifty 50 era um, that ended in 1972. And I think that's a very interesting comparison for all these other things that I mentioned with inflation and whatnot. And he said, every time you have this, you know, concentration in a number of stocks, it was nifty 50 stocks in the late sixties, early seventies. It was the, the dot com stocks and a handful of, um, really popular blue chips too. I think people forget Coca Cola stock price got extremely overpriced in, you know, the late nineties. But every time it ends in, uh, you know, a 10 year period of dramatic underperformance for those stocks. So, you know, the idea that we're going to have a, you know, a four or five month correction, and it's going to be a great time to buy the dip in these things is, uh, you know, shows a, um, a, a significant understanding of, of how these things play out. Uh, you know, we can talk about the fundamentals and, and valuations, but I, I think that's, you know, probably a key, key component of it too. Uh, smiling when you mentioned Bob Farrell, only because those who have seen me talk about this in the past, my father actually worked on his team in the in the late 80s and had a, a big influence on his career and by extension my my early childhood so and Farrell's rules are, are a must read and I think one of them is you know markets tend to overshoot both ways right and it's it's always tends to be more extreme than than you think now I will say to your point Jesse I mean part of the part of the reason why this uneducated speculation got so out of hand was social media algorithms right, that kept on further entrenching confirmation bias around this idea that the best way to invest to get that 1% is buy the stocks that people are doing memes on, right, and 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 silly kind of things like that. And with hindsight, you know, we're going to probably look back and say this was so obvious that this was a turning point for for markets because you saw this type of insanity on the fringe. The question, of course, becomes when does that end? Now, I'll tell you, I don't know if you've been tracking what's going on with Terra Luna, but I'm I'm amazed that with everything that's going on with the crypto crash we just saw, I see the uneducated speculation coming right back in after already a horrendous decline, which makes me think that this isn't over. Talk talk through that a bit because I I I, I don't know, man. It, it this is a really weird environment where it's almost like there has to be so much more pain to teach people a lesson of loss, but. They're just so quick to want to buy the dip, and people think it crashes a dip, and it could keep crashing. Yeah, well, you know, there was a great quote from uh, Dan Loeb uh, in his investor newsletter, or quarterly or annual report that came out for his, his hedge fund. And he said, you know, one of the biggest mistakes that he's seen investors make is failing to appreciate 
the change in the underlying environment of the markets. And I think that that's exactly what's going on here is people think we're still in a buy the dip environment. And, uh, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, with the sentiment, it, you know, we're, we're, we're nowhere near, you know, the place that would be a, uh, a long-term buy, you know, it's fascinating to me to see everybody in the crypto space, you know, quoting Buffett, be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy because everyone's still being greedy. Right. And so, uh, you know, you don't really see much fear yet when people are, you know, and, and you know, your, your point about social media, too, is is, a, is a, a really good one. I think when Rana Faruhar, who writes for the Financial Times, you know, in February of 2021, kind of the peak at this me of this meme frenzy, she tweeted that her 12 or 13 year old son had approached her and asked her for money to start a Robin Hood account because he saw a Snapchat story. Uh, that it was time to buy the dip because stonks only go up. This is something we didn't have right in the dot-com mania. You didn't have 12 and 13-year-olds wanting to open a Robinhood account to to buy GameStop. You didn't have you didn't have this. And so it's so much more extreme and you know when you see tons of money still flowing into the Ark Innovation Fund, it's just so obvious to me and this is this is the the, the real reason why I started writing about markets in 2005 you know writing about the real estate bubble i'm grateful to take time to do this this kind of a thing because the only way you go pour money into the arc innovation fund is if you've never experienced a bear market in your life because the idea that what we're seeing right now is fear is 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 ridiculous fear is is 2012 in the real estate market when anyone you talk to said i'll never buy a home ever again as long as i live the idea of buying real estate was was ridiculous and you could go to auctions and buy a house for cash literally less than the re- the replacement cost of the house it was buying stocks in 2009 when literally everybody had finally sold out of everything in their retirement fund uh, and said i'll never buy stocks ever again i'm only going to invest in treasury bills for the rest of my life that's what fear you know feels like and we're nowhere near that in in crypto right now we're nowhere near that in the stock market right now um and and sadly i think you know there there's there's uh more to come on the downside yeah you, you need a degree of almost investor ptsd right where it's like i'm just not never going to touch this ever again and that's that's when being it's not, it's not just be greedy when others are fearful it's been greedy it's be greedy when people give up right i mean that's i think really kind of the, the proper way to frame it Fed policy, and this is something that is astounding to me that investors are ignoring, right? The Fed is basically saying we need stock prices to come down more before we're confident that we're going to, that, that we've done enough to rate inflation, right? They're targeting financial conditions. And a big component of financial conditions is, you know, stock prices, corporate spreads, and these types of things. And they're basically saying we haven't done enough yet. And so to be, and and I'm not saying the stocks can't rally, right? We had a great rally on Friday and I I think, you know, there's possibility they could rally for a few more days. Um, But I do think we're in a sell rally type of market and the Fed is telling you, yeah, the more the market rallies, the the more aggressive we're going to be. It's essentially the opposite of the Fed put right now. Um, And and I can't remember, it was uh, Zoltan, I think, uh, put out a piece saying the Fed is in the business of selling calls right now. Um, that they have to, you know, cap the upside and they have to push stock prices lower to tighten financial conditions enough to make it appear to the world that they've done enough to, to fight inflation. So, yes, it's 
very difficult to be uh, a value investor. And, and this is one reason why I don't like the value factor. Uh, I'm not a fan of the value factor um, in the sense that, you know, I want to buy the, you know, 10% cheapest stocks in the market today. And the reason I'm not a fan of that is because uh, even that, you know, as my friend John Hussman has pointed out, the cheapest decile in the market recently traded at its highest valuation in history. So it might be cheap relative to the rest of the market, but it's not cheap relative to, you know, the, the last 25 years. And so, uh, you know, that that's a very important point. You can go buy the cheapest stocks in the market and still get hammered. I want to buy things that, um, you know, I, I think that the most interesting areas in the market to me right now are still the energy sector, um, the, the uh, XOP uh, energy ETF trades four times cash flow. The only reason, the only way that would be the right price for that is if you believe oil prices are going back down to, you know, 40, $50 a barrel and, and earnings are, are topping out right now. If you think the energy, you know, oil price is going to stay high for any length of time, then, then those stocks are dr- still dramatically undervalued. And if you think the oil price is maybe going to go to $200, $300 a barrel, then, you know, those stocks, you know, probably could still go up five, tenfold over the next few years. So it really depends on your view of energy. Same thing with the, you know, the gold miners. I mean, they're trading at significant uh, discounts to their historical valuations. The only way that makes sense is like, you know, buying cyclicals at the top is if you think earnings are coming back down. If you think the gold price is coming back down to a thousand an ounce, then yeah, those stocks are cheap for a good reason. But if you think the gold price is going to stay high, where gold price is going to go much higher in the years to come, those stocks are dramatically undervalued. So I think you have to, uh, and and those those ideas that I have, I think are confirmed by you know commitment of traders reports, which show the the smart money you know hedgers producers are extremely bullish on these commodities still, um, and nobody owns oil futures right now, right? The speculators uh, you know have have uh, are not betting on higher prices. So positioning tells me sentiment's still negative towards worth gold and oil prices it's they're nowhere near a top and insiders are still buying these stocks heavily so um you know the, the, i think to be a value investor in this environment you have to do old school type of homework in these things um you know what did uh, uh phil fisher called it um scuttlebutt you have to um do your homework um and it's not like just buying the value factor and and, and uh kind of relying on a shift that people people are going to shift into these cheaper stocks coming full circle that kind of goes to the name of the space the right way to look at stocks so it sounds to me like jesse that of the kind of main ways of looking at equities the one that's been least in vogue is about to make a healthy comeback which is fundamental analysis absolutely i mean you know i think you know warren buffett said 20 or 25 years ago or something long time ago he said you could never imagine a better advantage in the markets than teaching investors that thinking is a waste of time, right? He said this 25 years ago, that they were teaching the efficient market hypothesis in business school. And essentially, that's going to push all institutional investors to say, you know what? This idea of traditional fundamental research is doesn't work anymore. So I'm just going to buy the index and not worry about it. But what that does is the more and more people who do that, the more opportunity it creates for the few of us who are still doing 
you know, individual stock fundamental research because there are, and my friend Steve Bregman has done some great research, Horizon Kinetics. If you don't read his work, um, you're missing out because he's done some great work on, uh, you know, what is, uh, the, you know, the opportunities that are created by this push to passive. Uh, and, and, you know, some of the greatest opportunities uh, can be found are in these areas that are outside the purview of the indexes that are literally left for dead. There's, there's no money being allocated to these things anymore. And that's where the opportunity is. In addition to missing out on that, uh, everyone here is missing out if you're not already subscribed to Jesse's work and research of the Felder Report. So I think that's a good place to end it. Everybody, uh, as always, thank you for joining and attending these spaces. I'm doing one more tonight at 7 Eastern with John Rogue, 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Jesse, I always uh, appreciate your knowledge, the way that you frame things. Um, I find myself often nodding when I listen to you. Everything that you said is is spot on. And, you know, at the end of the day, I keep going back to what I said before. Nobody can predict the future. It's all about conditions and probabilities. And I think the way that you laid out the conditions and probabilities is uh, hopefully will be helpful to those that, that join. Thank you, Jesse. I appreciate it. Thank you. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.